Section 9 of Edward the Black Prince by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8, Poitiers, Part 1. The Black Prince had sailed from Plymouth on September 8, 1355, with a large band of nobles. He was received at Bordeaux with great joy by all the nobles of the country. The Gascon lords were eager to fight under the banner of so brave a prince, and to distinguish themselves by feats of arms. They had long been annoyed by the inroads of the French, and they now begged the prince to lead them on a foraging expedition into France. They formed no plan of campaign. The expedition was simply undertaken from love of plunder and of fighting for its own sake. The prince had the absolute command, and had been appointed the king's lieutenant in Aquitaine. The expedition which he now undertook shows us the dark side of chivalry. We see him and his young knights in wanton love of adventure spreading ruin and destruction over the fairest provinces of France. On leaving Bordeaux, he divided his army into several battles. These were to march at some distance from one another that they might devastate a larger extent of country. In this way they went through Armagnac to the foot of the Pyrenees. Then the prince turned northwards to Toulouse, where he waited, hoping in vain that the French might be provoked to battle. He next crossed the Garonne and went to Carcassonne, a rich and populous city as large as York. The inhabitants fled in terror, leaving the city gates open. The town was plundered and burnt, but the citadel stood firm, and the prince passed on without troubling to take it. To save themselves from a like fate, the inhabitants of Montpellier destroyed their own suburbs, and the members of the ancient university fled to Avignon to seek shelter with the Pope. Narbonne was one of the richest towns in France, and almost as large as London. It also was burnt and plundered. In eight weeks the Black Prince succeeded in ruining the richest district of France, from which the kings of France drew the chief part of their revenue. Peace had reigned there for more than a century, so that the inhabitants were ignorant of war and its horrors. Now five hundred towns and villages were smoking in ruins, the harvests were destroyed, everywhere there was devastation and ruin. The name of the Black Prince had become a terror not only to the people whose peaceful homes he had destroyed, but to the whole of France. Laden with booty, he and his knights returned to Bordeaux. Here the Gascon soldiers were dismissed till the spring, when an expedition into Poitou was talked of. The winter was spent by the Black Prince with his knights in great joy and festivity. There the herald, Chandos, tells us, was beauty and nobleness, sincerity, bounty, and liberality but they were not quite idle, for in the course of the winter they succeeded in retaking such fortresses in Gascony as had been taken by the French. It was not till the middle of the following summer that the Black Prince gathered his men together to start on a second campaign. He left Bordeaux on the 8th of July with only a small force, 2,000 men-at-arms and 6,000 archers, partly Gascon and partly English. His object was to make another foraging expedition, and, if possible, proceed onwards to join his cousin, the Duke of Lancaster, in Normandy. 
he went through Auvergne northward as far as Berry. Foissart tells us that he found the province of Auvergne very rich and all things in great abundance. They burnt and destroyed all the country they passed through, and when they entered any town which was well provisioned, they rested there some days to refresh themselves, and on leaving destroyed what remained, staving the heads of wine casks and burning the wheat and oats, so that their enemies could not save anything. Everywhere they found plenty as they advanced, for the country was very rich and full of forage for men-at-arms. At Vierzon, a town in Berry, they learnt that the king of France was at Chartres with a large army, and that all the passes and towns on the Loire were secured, and so well guarded, that no one could cross the river. The prince then held a council with his knights, and they resolved to return to Bordeaux through Touraine and Poitou, destroying all the country on their way. Near Romorantin, some of the prince's men had a skirmish with some French soldiers whom they routed. The castle of Romorantin refused to yield to the prince. As he was assailing it, one of his squires was killed at his side by a stone thrown from the castle. The prince was so furious that he swore he would not leave that place till he had the castle and all in it in his power. Cannons were brought forward, and Greek fire was shot upon the town, till a large tower of the castle covered with thatch caught fire and was all in a blaze. Then the garrison had to yield, but the prince treated them nobly and set many knights and squires at liberty, whilst he made the lords who had commanded the castle ride by his side and attend him as his prisoners. When the king of France heard that the prince was hastening back to Bordeaux, he determined to pursue him, thinking that he could not escape. He left Chartres and marched south to intercept him on his way back. John was marching almost in a direct line south, whilst the black prince was marching from Romorantin in a southwesterly direction. It was therefore impossible but that they should meet. The English, however, were ignorant of their danger, till they accidentally discovered, when near Charigny on September 17th, by coming upon a French reconnoitering party, that the great French army was between them and Bordeaux. Escape was impossible. The prince had only 8,000 men, while John had a mighty army of 50,000. But Prince Edward would rather fight even against such odds than yield to an enemy. All that remained for him was to choose his position well and fight his best. The skilful tactics displayed by the prince in disposing of his small force show us that he was something more than merely a brave soldier. King John sent Sir Eustace de Ribonmont to reconnoitre the English. He brought back an account of the way in which they were posted, which has been preserved to us. There were two thousand men-at-arms, six thousand archers and about one thousand camp followers quartered on a small hill which did not contain two thousand square feet of ground this hill was surrounded by very thick hedges and was divided in the middle by a road a little crooked and so narrow that hardly three men could go up it abreast the road was covered on both sides with high hedges behind which were encamped the archers who were still at work making a new ditch at the end of these hedges were the men-at-arms on foot, each holding his horse by his bridle. 
they were standing amidst vines and thorns where it was impossible to march in any regular order before them were drawn up the archers arranged in the manner of a harrow on the left where the hedges and the avenue were not so thick the wagons were piled up one upon another to make a barrier some cavalry were collected on a little eminence to the right that they might attack the enemy on the flanks on sunday morning september eighteenth king john was ready and impatient for the attack he ordered a solemn mass to be sung in his tent and he and his four sons partook of the communion after some debate with his chief nobles it was ordered that the whole army should push into the plain and that each lord should display his banner and advance in the name of god and st denis the trumpets sounded and every one mounted his horse and made for that part of the plain where the king's banner was planted and fluttering in the wind there says foissart might be seen all the nobility of france richly dressed in brilliant armour with banners and pennons gallantly displayed for all the flower of the french nobility was there no knight nor squire for fear of dishonour dared to remain at home and all this mighty force was going to attack a small body of eight thousand men mostly simple archers men of the people standing at bay amidst the hedges and vineyards on the little hill when the french were on the point of marching against their enemies the cardinal of perigord who had left poitiers that morning early came at full gallop to the king and making a deep reverence begged him for the love of god to stay a minute most dear sire he said with uplifted hands you have here all the flower of knighthood of your kingdom against a handful of people such as the english are you may have them upon other terms than by battle i beseech you by the love of god let me go to the prince and remonstrate with him on the dangerous situation he is in then the king answered it is agreeable to us but make haste back again the cardinal found the prince on foot in the thickest part of the vineyard and when he asked him for permission to make up matters between him and the king of france the prince replied sir my own honour and that of my army saved i am ready to listen to reasonable terms the cardinal then returned to john and after much eloquent pleading succeeded in persuading him to consent to a truce till the next day at sunrise the king ordered a very handsome and rich pavilion of red silk to be pitched on the spot where he stood and dismissed his army to their quarters for the present all sunday the cardinal rode from one army to another and did his utmost to bring about a peaceful agreement but the king of france would listen to nothing unless the prince of wales and one hundred of his knights surrendered themselves prisoners to these terms the prince could not be expected to consent on monday morning the french almost angrily bade the cardinal be gone and trouble them no more with his entreaties then he went to the prince of wales and said fair son exert yourself as much as possible for there must be a battle the prince replied that such was his intention and that of his army and god defend the right on the whole the cardinal did not meet with much gratitude from either side for his endeavours and he went sadly back to poitiers sunday had been spent by the prince's men in making many mounds and ditches round the ground where the archers stood to secure their position they were much straitened for want of provisions as they could not without danger move from their place to seek them 
the french on the other hand were well supplied and spent the day in the midst of plenty when the prince saw on monday morning that the battle was inevitable and knew with what contempt the french regarded him and his men he spoke thus to his army now my gallant fellows what though we be a small body when compared to the army of our enemies do not let us be cast down on that account for victory does not always follow numbers but where the almighty god pleases to bestow it if through good fortune the day shall be ours we shall gain the greatest honour and glory in this world if the contrary should happen and we be slain i have a father and beloved brethren alive and you all have some relations or good friends who will be sure to revenge our deaths i therefore beg you exert yourselves and fight manfully for if it please god and st george you shall see me this day act like a true knight with these and other words the prince and his marshals encouraged the men so that they were all in high spirits then the prince retired a little way apart and kneeling down prayed father almighty as i have ever believed that thou art king over all kings and that for us upon the cross thou wert content to suffer death to save us from the pains of hell father who art very god and very man be pleased for thy holy name to guard me and my people from ill even as o heavenly father thou knowest that i have good cause then he was ready to fight sir john chandos placed himself near the prince to guard and advise him and never during that day would he on any account quit his post End of section nine